this episode of Media Roots Radio, I interview Colin Hobick, a digital privacy rights advocate and filmmaker, about his newest documentary film, Terms and Conditions May Apply. Terms and Conditions May Apply is a full-length documentary film specifically honing in on the issue of digital privacy rights and the data mining economy of corporate surveillance. Cullen released his first short film in 2003 and eventually his first full-length, Freedom State, in 2006. In 2007, Cullen would release his first feature-length documentary film titled Monster Camp, a lighthearted look at the live-action role-playing community. Terms and Conditions May Apply premiered in January 2013, a few months before the world had even heard the name Edward Snowden. Immediately following the Snowden prison revelations, Cullen's film thesis was now proven true, with actual documents to back it up, before it was released in theaters in July of 2013. Because of this, Cullen added an addendum to the movie explaining what these revelations meant. Cullen was ahead of the curve in terms of trying to draw attention to these issues through using film as a medium. Now while working on multiple films simultaneously, Cullen continues to be an activist about bringing awareness to the inherent problem of corporate data mining and surveillance. But he also has tried to bring attention to the extreme collusion between Silicon Valley data mining companies and the U.S. government intelligence sector. If you checked out our second-to-last episode, Occupy Silicon Valley, think of this particular episode as its spiritual sequel. So the film um, had its premiere uh, six five or six months before the Snowden revelation. So it premiered in, in Park City um, in January 2013, and then it actually was released in theaters in, in mid-July. So oh, okay. Okay, so it came out long before that. I was probably, I, I think at one point your film aired on television, um, and that's probably where I yeah, got that date out, from. it came out on television on, in, in, uh, in August, yeah. So, so, the, so the thing you added at the end, the addendum about, the prism revelations was that added sort of after its initial release when the snow. That's right. Yeah, I added that before the theatrical release in July. Okay. Um, well, now that we're discussing that, were, were you surprised by, um, the prism revelation when, when it came out originally in the news? Um, was I surprised by the prism revelation? Uh, no, not at all. Um, the, the prison revelation, uh, what Edward Snowden did when he came out with that, that first of many, many, many programs and documents was give names um, to what we already knew. I mean, we already knew that the NSA uh, was, had the capacity to be mining all of our information and storing it, but we didn't know exactly what the partnerships were. We didn't know exactly what the names of these um, systems were, and we didn't have meaningful evidence. And that means that in the film, you know, I have um, several whistleblowers, Russ Tice and Mark Klein, coming out and saying, look, this is going on, guys. Like, Here's here's where the NSA, ha, you know, literally pipes into all internet traffic at AT&T. Here it is. You got Russ Tice coming from the NSA, going like they had access to all communications, all American communications. So we knew this, but historically, the government had painted these people as lunatics, or the the information just managed to disappear. But Edward Snowden kept the story going for a long time, and he came with evidence. And that evidence was night and day. So was I surprised that uh, PRISM was... Uh, I was surprised that uh, that it happened in the way that it did, as in, as intelligently as it did. 
um, and that suddenly the NSA was on the tips of everyone's tongue, uh, tongues, whereas before most Americans didn't even know that this organization existed. All of that surprised me, but the actual program itself was not a surprise. Yeah, I would, I would guess that with the content that you laid out in your film, that it was probably extremely vindicating um, to, you know, to see that, that in sort of around the same time that your film was already making the rounds, that that was, um, that was revealed to the public. And as you said, most of that stuff, if you had been paying attention to these whistleblowers previous to that, you would have guessed that they were doing most of that. Glenn Greenwald only really talked about this in his book much later, um, No Place to Hide. He was expecting all these companies to sort of have a save face moment where they'd be like, yes, we want this to stop. The government is making us do this. We don't want to be doing this. But instead, pretty much all of the companies utterly denied that it, it existed. And, and they even claimed that they didn't even know the word PRISM program. I mean, they, they, they feigned total ignorance. Um, when those revelations came out. So in a way, as the NSA revelations continued to come out through Snowden, the sort of idea that the corporations were heavily involved in this also kind of, in my mind at least, kind of fell to the wayside a little bit, and maybe even more than it should have in the public consciousness, because, you know, it's not just the U.S. government that we should be watching out for. Why are we even giving all this data to these private corporations to begin with? Do you think, looking back on it now, you know, almost a year after the PRISM revelation, or has it been a year? Yeah, I guess it's been... It's, been, a, it's been over a year, yeah. Yeah. Um, looking back on that now, do you think that those were genuine denials like from the new ceo of apple and you know saying that he that they don't give the government a backdoor what is your opinion on on sort of their stance on that well there's two things first off i i when they say they didn't know the name prison that's totally possible they had other names they might have but someone there were people at the company and higher ups at the company certainly who were aware that these deals were going on these back these backdoor access deals I mean, there's a reason that Apple didn't join the join the anti privacy privacy ship with the government, and they were like the last ones to join prison, uh, you know. And this is after Steve Jobs' death, so it shows a, a shift in mentality in the company. And that's the thing with all of these companies; is it always comes down to trust. And this showed us, you know, that these mega corps um, should not be trusted. And you have to ask yourself, like, what are these companies getting out of it? Like, why give and I've really thought about, like, why give the NSA this, this backdoor access? And the reason is that you know, there, are, there are other benefits that come from that for these companies, especially companies that are trying to move into international space, um, who are trying to move into new markets, who might, who might need a little bit of a helping hand when they're, when they're moving abroad. Um, and then also you can imagine uh, the head of the NSA uh, strolling into Mark Zuckerberg's office and, and being, you know, being like, well, look, if, if, a national, if, if there's a national emergency, there's a terrorist attack that happened in America and it was all plotted on Facebook servers. You don't want that on your shoulders. You know, and we'll we'll have to say to the American people, man, Facebook let this happen. We went there, we wanted access, but they let it happen. <laughs> so it's very. Can you just imagine Mark Zuckerberg is like, well, I don't know, like, is it all going to be behind the scenes? We'll be fine. Sure, okay, sign on the dotted line. 
you know, move, moving along. So there's a few reasons that could, could motivate something like this, access and fear. Um, and I, without, I 100% believe that these companies knew that this was going on. Eric Schmidt, uh, Eric Schmidt um, has, has said as much, you know. I mean, they've worked with the government for a long time. Microsoft has built intentional backdoors for a long time. This is not new information. Um, it, but the name itself, Prism, I don't know if they knew they knew specifically the names or exactly what, you know, what all of the details were of how the NSA was gaining access. But what I mean is they actually had people who were just, their job is just to process requests from the government. But when it comes to actually having back for access, you know, I don't, I doubt that they let too many people know what was going on with that. So scratch the last thing. I don't know if government employees are actually working on their side. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but what I can absolutely say is that there's certainly a massive force of people um, processing requests. Yeah, and that's and and of course the the idea of processing these individual requests is different than um, the government having actual backdoor access, and we just simply don't know how that works because that they're not they're completely not transparent about that aspect of it. They they'll reveal publicly sometimes. Oh, we got this many requests. You know, we turned this percentage down or or whatever. Um, but yeah, there's a whole other side of it that seems much more. I mean, obviously much more of an egregious violation because we, we simply don't have a paper trail or any record whatsoever of what they're scooping out from that back door. Um, yeah, well, and I think when we talk about these requests, too, they're really a distraction. Because a lot of these requests are legal requests or from local yeah. law enforcement. And the idea is like, well, we, you know, you have Facebook and Yahoo and these companies coming out and saying, like, we want to be able to show you how many requests we're getting. If you're able to do that, then we'd have a meaningful transparency report, which which is bullshit. You wouldn't have a meaningful transparency report in that situation. You would just know how many specific requests are being processed. But what's really going on here is, is mass data extraction of everything that's happening on their servers. And then I think the reason that Google was so pissed off when they found out about Muscular um, is because they were already giving access to the NSA. They didn't, the NSA didn't need to go around and then scoop it up through this sort of backdoor international, um, international line. So I, I think that that's, that that really kind of, you know, irked Eric Schmidt when he found out, he's like, wait, I thought we were working closely with you guys. I mean, we gave you everything you wanted. Why are you, why are you also doing this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, that's but, I mean, any any anger that's come from these companies is all it's all fake. You know, it's all just designed to make them make people feel like the companies have always been on their side. And I and I really have seen a lot of the and I can't fault them entirely. You know, a lot of the organizations out there sort of rally with these companies because the companies have massive amounts of money, and if you can align with the companies. Um, then you can use that money to uh, as for, for political capital, for lobbying, for other things, um, and for influence. And that's why I think probably these companies have gotten off somewhat scot-free, is because uh, is because there is a desire to work with them to see change, and 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 in doing so, these companies are trying to save face. But in but in takeaways, I mean, not nothing about Google's operations is changing. Facebook is only doing further and further, more and more insane privacy grabs and ownership grabs of our of our information in our lives. I mean, it's it's all a it's all a fake. I mean, there's nothing there's nothing that these companies are doing that's meaningful in terms of its change. And any outrage that 
uh, one of these massive internet companies is espousing is just is completely fake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, I guess what doesn't make sense to me is why we should put any more faith in these companies than we do in, in, in the intelligence agencies, you know, to protect our privacy. But there was a really interesting part of your film. And I guess I didn't really connect the two together before until you raised this idea in the film called terms and conditions may apply. You have a part in, in that film, which talks about how the Patriot Act had some wording in it about companies having to retain their data and was it they have to retain their data indefinitely for, so that the government could essentially use that data for a, a terrorism prevention or, or a criminal investigation. Could you go into that a little bit and, and how that m- might have helped shape some of these terms and conditions and, and policies of these companies like Google you know, after 9-11 happened, there was, a, there was a, of course, a massive cultural shift. And um, as part of protecting us from alleged terrorism, um, a big part of that was there, there were new sort of laws placed, uh, thrown down digitally. And some of those included data retention. Um, so there was new data retention that was required. But, um, you know, and so you'll see in a lot of terms and conditions and privacy policies that uh, information can be shared with the government um, in instances where there might be some sort of potential uh, threat or criminal investigation. But it actually was far more expansive than that, and it basically says that um, it basically says that they can share information with the government um, just for purposes of basically scraping the potential for potential crimes, right? Yeah, pre-crime. Like, yeah, that, that basically they can share information with the government for crimes that might happen. And what that means is they can share all information with the government. And that's, that's what started popping up in these privacy policies in terms of conditions. But you have to also remember the privacy and policies in terms of conditions are a pretty new concept. They hadn't been around that long. Um, you only really started seeing privacy policies in the very late 90s, and companies were still sort of figuring this out. So it's sort of a strange time when companies were figuring out, like, how to create these legal relationships with people online, how to, uh, you know, sort of deal with privacy matters. And then the government at the same time saying like, we know how, you know, you need to deal with privacy matters. And what ended up happening was a few very clever actors along the way said, well, you know, people are all complaining about this privacy stuff for the Patriot Act, but we're being required to retain data anyway. Well, as long as we have to retain this data, we may as well make some money off it. And then you start to see these new services crop up that that have these massive server banks that, that store personal information like Gmail, uh, Friendster, and eventually MySpace. I mean, it took a couple of years after 9-11 for them to kick in. But if you really think about it, the ushering in of, of Web 2.0 and social media all happened after 9-11. Yeah, no, that raises a really good point because, I mean... shifted the world's consciousness to such a degree we've almost forgotten that it was also a similar boom for for the internet and the way that people interacted with the digital world that it it sort of was a simultaneous happening i mean you know a lot of internet geeks and and people like myself were you know deep into the internet you know all throughout the 90s but i'd say the mainstream public didn't really start to be deeply into the internet until you know, the aughts and, and, you know, after 9-11, essentially. What you've described sounds almost like a, a very, well, a symbiotic relationship from the very beginning of, of when these companies started retaining all this data. 
you know, the government might not have been pulling all of it out or scooping all of it out back then, but the government, maybe they were sort of pre-gaming what they eventually might need to do. And, and we know from what Bill Binney has revealed that that the Thin Thread program that was collecting all this metadata from the internet was already was already finished being built in 1998, but it was never enacted until Michael Hayden changed it to be, I believe he called it Stellar Wind, which was a modification of it so that he he stripped it of its encryption and made it so that all the data that would be sucked out would not be encrypted, um, which is essentially bulk data collection on on everybody. You know, company, let's say a company refuses to do this. What would be the option of a company that, you know, that hasn't gone public yet, that's just ran, you know, that's like ran by a few people? Like there was a company uh, uh, called LavaBit where the CEO of the company, well, I mean, he did refuse to comply with the government by not giving them his data, but he had to actually shut down the company because legally he would have had to give over the data had he still retained it. I mean, basically they, they threw a gag order on, on the owner and they were, they were trying, they were basically using a lot of legal tricks in order to extricate information about Edward Snowden from him. And since he had put in, certain, in his agreement with his users that he would never share information with the government, he was put in a very tricky spot. And legally he was, he was obliged to hand over that information. And as such, he said, well, either I hand over the information or I, or I terminate the business. And he terminated the business, you know, and destroyed all the information, and there was nothing that they could get. Users were outraged, you know, they were real pissed off that suddenly their emails and all this stuff was no longer there. But, but basically, he said, well, look, if I give it over to this one person, then suddenly you're all at risk. Everybody's at risk, and I'm not doing the thing that I promised I would do. So this is the most ethical thing to do in this situation. Um, and that was, that was the outcome. And I think one of the big challenges with this stuff is 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 now kind of finding new innovative solutions that are workarounds, right? That that actually um, that actually make it so the company itself can't even see the information. And this is this is I think really the key. If the company can't see what's being stored, then when it actually gets shared, there's there's nothing there's nothing to share. Good luck breaking this massive <laughs> encrypted package. Good luck, right? Yeah. And then encryption. I mean, I, I've had to learn a lot about this stuff for these. I mean, my background's in film. It's not in, it's not in encryption. It's not in, uh, you know, uh, digital rights. Um, but it's become that. I mean, the last three to four years, four years of my life now, I guess, have been dedicated to nothing but this topic. And I think it's been really helpful, actually, because I started basically as a novice, and, and I've just spent all of this time meeting with experts, talking with experts, thinking about these issues, doing interviews like this. And as time goes by, you know, you, you hopefully figure out how to like translate, um, translate these issues to, you know, the person you were four years ago. <laughs> and, uh, and then simultaneously, you know, work with people in the space to come up with solutions. Um, but I actually want to go back to what we were saying before with 9-11, which is that and the government had been looking for, for ways to come up with uh, ways to access everything that we do all, for a very long time. I and mean, they, they, they tried initializing a program in the early 2000s that would have um, that had this big creepy eye with the pyramid on it and its logo. And the objective of this was to uh, scrape all information, you know, phone records, credit card, um, and then combine that with like airline travel and everything that we do online. And it freaked people out. They were terrified of this. They were like, you don't want the government knowing all of this stuff. 
But the trick the, the, they figured out, like the way the, the workaround, is to have a third party do it. And then suddenly Facebook comes out and MySpace and, and, and Google is, is, is there collecting all of this information, doing the thing that the government has wanted desperately for so long uh, for them. And, uh, and thanks to this misty little, little legal trick called the third party doctrine, once you give your information to a Facebook or a Google or any of these companies, uh, you've lost control over that information. It's now theirs. And then they can give it to whoever they want. Or if there is a legal obligation, then they're required to give it to the government. So it was a very, very convenient workaround for the government to do something that it had failed at miserably. Because um, if the government comes to you directly, they can't do it. And it's very hard for them to do it. But if they can go through someone else, it's much, much easier. And if you think about it, it's very similar actually to how Blackwater works. Because we legally couldn't do a bunch of stuff in Iraq um, in, in terms of our military strategy and operations. There's just things that the military is prevented from doing that an independent contractor can get away with. So when you want someone to do your dirty work for you and you can't do it yourself, hire a third party. Hire Facebook. That's that's a really great point. Yeah, the, the whole concept of, of Blackwater being immune in a large part to the things that the U.S. military would normally be under more scrutiny for. It, it, it's a great insight into how, you know, a company doing the government's dirty work um, can essentially get away with it. it there was a really interesting um, uh, quote that when George W. Bush was in office, I think he was doing some kind of Q&A at a, at a school library somewhere, and a young girl asked him, you know, how how do we hold private military contractors accountable when they don't follow the same rules as like the U.S. military and they're operating in a different country? And George, it was like one of the most candid answers I've ever seen George W. Bush give. He said, you know what? That's a really good question. That's a really good question, but I'm going to dodge it conveniently. <laughs> and he literally, that's literally what he said. Cause I mean, that's, I mean, that's the answer is that the reason why question by the way really it was, it was solid <laughs> yeah the re i mean essentially the, she, the question she was asking was the answer is that these people can't be held accountable to the same to the same laws and that's essentially why they're allowed to operate in the way that they do i believe you're talking about total information awareness the the really scary right. really scary almost like evoking like the illuminati conspiracy culture with the eye um, on top of the pyramid beaming a light at the planet. In, in your movie, you're, you're interviewing someone who sort of explains that, well, they learned that if they come up with a really scary logo and a name for something, um, it's going to scare a lot of people. So they, they just don't don't release the scary logo and the name, but just continue to do it, you know, anyways. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. It was a mixture of Chris Segoyan, who's at the ACLU now, and uh, Barrett Brown, who, uh, who's in prison now, uh, but used to, used to um, coordinate with, with Anonymous. Uh, but they were both commenting on that. Like, the first rule is, you know, in, in developing a super scary uh, government spy surveillance program is don't give it a creepy name. Total information awareness is a creepy name. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> or just don't let the public know that you're doing it. I mean, when you start to see these logos and icons for all of the programs that were released by Edward Snowden, you just like, you, you, you can't help but laugh. They're ridiculous. You've got, you know, Prism, which is like taking light and 
fracturing it off. You've got like, I forget which one it is that has like a wizard with like a ball at the tip Mystic. of it. Or, like again, you like, which one was it? Mystic. Mystic. Oh man. I mean, they're slightly less creepy names and they're much nerdier. But <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. It's 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 really weird to look through some of those slides and just to see what level of like graphic design, you know, the NSA department has. I mean, there's some really strange stuff in there that. Um, kind of blows my yeah, mind. That's who I would love to meet. It's who is the graphic designer? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, creating all of the images. Like, what ad agency do they like hire on? Like, with like significant non-disclosure agreements to design the wizard for the Mystic program. <laughs> the lava bit thing. That what you when you said that was the most ethical thing that he he could think of doing. Essentially, he had to destroy his own business and lose a lot of money. I mean, this guy had his own business. And it's kind of a sad commentary that that's one of the only real ways to avoid a gag order like that is literally to fold your own business. So I, I just find that just to be a very tragic commentary on how you would have to take a stand if you're a company that's holding people's digital data. Mm -hmm. Well, here's the thing. I mean, we're not seeing it in the U.S. as much, but world trust has been lost in these companies I and mean, in any company that's based in the U S because of this stuff. And it's the one thing that legislators on the Hill really respond to money. Yeah. And if you go in and you say to them, like, look, uh, these big enterprises that are worth hundreds of billions of dollars, uh, from, from abusing user data are, uh, are suddenly like hemorrhaging cash internationally. Cause that's where they're trying to expand. Google's got the market in the U.S. Facebook's got the market. They're trying to expand internationally. And suddenly when you, people internationally are like, what? screw that. I'm just going to use like the Swedish version of Facebook or whatever. <laughs> um, you know, the, the one, something that respects my privacy because people abroad care a lot more about this stuff, generally speaking. Um, Absolutely. It's, it's just uh, it's much more a part of, of, for whatever reason, and it's probably because in a lot of places, especially in Europe, it's just more in their recent history. They see the damage that's been done by by a government having too much knowledge about its citizens, especially in Germany. Um, you know, or the Brazilian president. I th I think she even suggested them building their own internet, internal internet that wouldn't even be connected to you know the Western internet or. Yeah, I mean, these things are really scary ideas, though, actually. Like, that's the fracturing of the Internet as a, as a byproduct of the NSA spying could be the worst thing that, that could possibly happen. You know, and this is one of those things that I say when I travel to other countries. Like, I was in Russia, and they were talking about that. I'm like, do you guys really want the Russian government to store all of this information on you? Do you really want Russian companies to have this? Like, <laughs> we're actually much better off as citizens, by and large, I think, if our information is stored by a government that doesn't care as much about us. Yeah. Like the American government doesn't really care what most Russian citizens are up to. They don't. I, you know who does care? Putin. Putin cares a lot. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There is a huge problem, obviously, with these private companies sharing so much data with the U.S. government and then complying with most of their requests or giving them a complete backdoor access to their information. But I wanted to veer off a little bit into the subject of just the ethics and the problematic nature of isolating this just to the idea of corporate surveillance, these companies using our information to essentially make money off of and, and to try to study us as human beings, what we like, what we want to buy, um, you know, who we talk to um, and things like that. There's a whole ethical dilemma just 
in and of itself in that realm, completely apart from the government. Why do you think it is that people are so supposedly outraged about NSA surveillance, but not equally outraged about just the private sector surveillance, which is essentially, to put it bluntly, corporate surveillance? Uh, Two reasons. One, the corporations have better marketing. And two, uh, the corporations are giving people something. So, you know, when you, they, and they, have, they feel fuzzy a little bit towards Google. They feel less fuzzy towards Facebook. Um, you know, it, there's varying degrees of, of like and dislike. Uh, people, I think, are really starting to turn against Facebook more, more progressively. It's, it's almost like a drug, though. Like, it starts out fun, and, and it's, it seems like something that you can control, and then eventually it turns against you. And these systems are drugs. I mean, they, they are built and designed and tailored to manipulate our psychology, to, to increase dopamine, to keep us coming back to the trough. And, uh, and you know, what we thought was serving us is now, it was never serving us. I mean, we've always been the product, but it's becoming more apparent. Uh, but it's interesting still, despite it becoming more apparent, that the outrage is more at the NSA. And I think that's partially because that's been, that's been the story. That's the headline. And you have to also remember, though, that these companies are worth hundreds of billions of dollars. So outside of this marketing, they have their fingers in a lot of different pots. I mean, Jeff Bezos bought the main newspaper in Washington, D.C. Yeah, and he is from Amazon, right? Yeah, he's from Amazon. He's the the CEO of Amazon. Um, What is it? The Washington Post. So... uh, (laughs) <laughs> it's it, it's not it's not a coincidence that um, the, the the media is is able to hammer on the NSA, but do less so at these big conglomerates because they've got they've got more uh, they've they've got their money in a lot of different a lot of different places, and there are other interests at play. Yeah, and that's a, it's it it raises strange issues when you when you start thinking about Jeff Bezos buying buying the Washington Post. This is a guy who has access to a gigantic database of probably, you know, what's now the biggest marketplace of physical goods in the world, Amazon. And so it's it's strange to me just to think of how, you know, he can use that da- that data from Amazon's buying history, all the customer records to sort of shape you know, how, uh, what content to put in a newspaper to reach people the best. When you start thinking about how they could use the data, um, it, it, you do start to see exactly how valuable it is as just a commodity. Well, the goal of it with that, right, is just to know what you're going to do before you do it. Like the exactly. Hope is that by taking all of this information, that, that you'll be able to predict desire and intent. Um, and, and that's that's the holy grail is is, is serving someone with an ad for the thing that they that they didn't even know they want, but is exactly what they want. And that's the main goal of these companies is to service us with ads. The problem is that the information can of course be used for lots of other things. And you know if it gets into the wrong hands or gets used differently or gets sold to a company with different you know if one company sells to another company, which happens all the time, um, who wants to use the information differently, they totally can. Why? Because everyone's term says that they can change the terms at any time. 
Yeah. And there's no laws on the books existing already that I know of that say that just, I, I don't think this will happen, but theoretically in the future, all these companies retaining all this data could, could have at some point share it all, or they, these companies could merge with each other and they'll even have more data on us. Well, it's, 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 I mean, what these companies, they want, they want the biggest data set imaginable. I mean, Facebook, I believe they were, they were looking to acquire Axiom. I think that they did acquire the data set from Axiom so they could merge it with their own data set. You know, they wanted the biggest data set on their users possible. I mean, Facebook stores data on users that aren't even users. <laughs> they, yeah. they have, uh, they're, they're called like ghost users essentially. And these are people who are like, it might be your mom who's not on Facebook, but guess what? Like they know that you know her because they downloaded your entire contact list from your phone and all of the other people's phones. So they know, they, they know where you live on like in their cloud. They have a profile on you, even though you've never used Facebook. And the same thing is insane about Gmail, like if you send an email to a Gmail user, your email gets scanned by Gmail. Your information, all of that gets scanned. You become subjected to Google's terms and conditions, even though you're not a Google user. That's very fascinating. And you you brought up Gmail and Facebook in the same sentence, and that that's perfect timing. I remember back when Gmail first came onto the scene that it seemed not only was it free, but it also had this allure to it where it was almost like exclusive. It was invite only. You weren't able to get a yeah. Gmail account originally unless you got invited, you know, by some cool friend of yours that already had one. And I remember it seemed kind of cool, you know, it was like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm using this sort of new beta G, um, Google service that no, not everybody has yet. And I remember I sort of bought into that idea. It like made me feel good that I, you know, I was in this sort of elite club at the time. And also Facebook started that way as well, where it was only um, for specific universities. And then over time, it would slowly expand the exclusivity until it was available to the entire public. So I think there's something definitely to that, that it's like they, they create these different attractions to, you know, to these services. Um, you think that they're free. Um, obviously you're the commodity, so it's not, there's a, there's a definite cost to it. It's just not something that you physically or even emotionally feel necessarily when you're, when you're submitting to these services. But, um, and that was, you know, early, early on on the internet, you know, a lot of people were wondering how are these companies going to make money, um, when their services are all free essentially. And, and we found our answer fairly quickly <laughs> that, that, you know, they're making our money off of our information and that's the, that's the most valuable commodity of all. Um, but you, you hear the talking point often that part of the reason government surveillance is more dangerous than corporate surveillance is because private companies can't audit you. They can't arrest you. They can't charge you with a crime. You volunteer your data to private companies. You don't volunteer it to the government. But in 2014, what difference does it make if it's a private company that has this information that the government can either access with permission or through a back door? I mean, doesn't the government already essentially have the keys to the whole kingdom anyways? Um, there's no line between the government and, the, and these companies. They're the same. If you give your information to the company, you're giving it to the government. So anyone who sits back and saying, like, it's no, no big deal to hand over the information to the company is doesn't understand the situation. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's pretty much all that it comes down to. Um, 
yeah, I mean, once you've handed over that information, you you you've given up control, and it's it's like a very it's like Hansel, Hansel and Gretel, right? Like whatever that fairy tale was where they see the, the house and like, oh, I'm just going there to eat the candy, but inside then they get cooked. Like <laughs> the house is just the company. It's just the shell and the government, you know, the NSA is just waiting inside to cook them. Like that's, that's the reality. It's just, it's just, it's like the bait essentially, you know, we get a benefit from this bait and there's, there's, but there's no line between the two at all. Uh, and that's why I mean, and we say companies. I mean, there are companies which are evolving now, which which have used innovative new encryption methodology to draw a line. Um, the problem is that, that you know there's questions in terms of how to monetize that, and people are used to getting everything for free. Um, and I also think that there is a problem. Like we don't want privacy for some, right? We want privacy for all, and so it shouldn't just be for people who can afford it. Do you have any faith whatsoever or any belief that companies like Google or Microsoft are actually going to be adversarial with the U.S. government in this regard in the future? Like, do you believe that they will internally reform by encrypting all their data so that the government can't get it? Because that's what they've been um, talking about. Like, I, I think there's been some lawsuits actually between Microsoft and, and the U.S. government. That's because they're, they're losing money. I mean, I said before they're not outraged. They're outraged that they're losing money. They're not outraged that these <laughs> that, that these uh, the, the spy system existed that they were totally aware of. You know. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's possible that we might see some moves in this direction, but uh, but again, I mean, it's it's going to what the goal is going to be is to make it appear that it's happened. Yeah. You know, these companies don't have our best interests at heart. They have deeply entrenched relationships with um, the powers that be in Washington. And they're going to come up with ways to do business as usual, but make it seem like there's been a significant change. That, that's what's going to happen. Yeah, sort of a, a, the false, the, um, false appearance of, of a internal reform or, or you know, being yeah, on, exactly. being on the, the side only of the company list. I would trust is a, is a company that doesn't is is a, is a new company. I wouldn't trust any company that's been around the block before and has all of these long-standing relationships because they have too many incentives to to, to not do the right thing. Yeah, and I think when Mark Klein originally came out with his revelations, people might have not been completely shocked because it was like a company that had been around for forever. It didn't really supplant itself into the mind of like young, more liberal minded people by statements such as don't be evil and, and things like that. I mean, AT&T is considered just a classic old school corporation that probably has worked with the U.S. government, you know, many, many times in the past. But Google sort of presented they literally get paid money for handing over data. AT&T does. Oh, did they? I didn't know there. that. Oh, yeah. Okay. Ten, wow. million, ten million in one case. Yeah, there's. I mean, it's it's. <laughs> uh, I mean, these companies actually make money off of handing over data. They make a profit over, off responding to requests. Wow, it's it's actually kind of amusing to go back in time to like Google's pre pre stock market Google, like when Google was not a, a public company yet. They would host talks at their corporate headquarters in in Mountain View with like Noam Chomsky and and all these like 
you know, pretty adversarial towards the government, you know, liberal thinkers. And I, it's just strange right. to me that, that, that they got a lot of people to sort of believe in them based on this idea that they weren't evil and that they were going to, they weren't going to censor things. But then I remember it started to slip. I think this is even before they became public, that people were starting to question their, their ethics when they started blocking search results in various countries like China, I think Russia, other countries across the world that censor internet results. But I wanted to go back to your, your film. This is going to be a spoiler alert for people who haven't uh, seen it. Fast forward five minutes or so. Um, you At the end of the film, you actually confronted at Mark Zuckerberg's um, suburban home, you confronted him walking walking outside. I don't know why. I mean, I, I guess part of me is I, I tend to be more paranoid in general, but when I saw that, I was like, I was, I was very nervous for you. I, I, I would be paranoid after I did that, that like, you know, like I wouldn't even want to be on Facebook anymore after something like that happened in fear of what, um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg might tell his, uh, his, um, underlings to like do, or to, you know, to, to do with my account online. So I'm wondering, did you, were you paranoid after you made this film? Oh, you know, I was paranoid. I called up the guy who is like <laughs> the lead hacker who's, who's in the film who says that of course privacy is dead because he knows how to infiltrate virtually anything. And I was like, you know, what do you think they're going to do? And, and he knew people over at, at Facebook and he's like, I think that they're going to play nice. I wouldn't worry too much. Um, and they also didn't know at the time, like, I mean, how big it was going to become, you know, it was just a, a one-off strange occurrence in Mark Zuckerberg's day. I don't know how many times these sort of things happen, but what you also don't see in the shot is there's just an armada of security that appears in a matter of seconds. Oh, really? And there's also security that just sits outside of his house. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, I mean, I knew that they, they had full, there's no chance that that security hadn't run my plates. Um, they didn't know who was sitting in the car, that Mark Zuckerberg hadn't been informed. And for whatever reason, he decided to just go anyway. You know, he, more power to him, I guess. But, <laughs> uh, I mean, since that time, he's bought all of the houses around him. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I don't know what his master plan is, but I think it's, it's clearly that he wants, uh, he, he desperately wants privacy. I mean, that's just, so abundantly clear to me. I mean, and that's abundantly clear with all of these Silicon Valley types, like, you know, Eric Schmidt and, and all of this. I mean, he got, he basically black, he blacklisted CNET for posting a picture of his house for a year. You know, these are the guys who are coming out and saying like, don't worry. Like you have nothing, you have nothing to hide if you're not doing anything wrong. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just so unbelievably hypocritical and it's because it's profitable. You know, you say one thing and do another because it's so unbelievably profitable. And there's, there was another interesting revelation about Eric Schmidt from a year ago. It's kind of more of a, a tabloidy revelation, but it still is an insight into how he, he knows how to protect his own privacy and he knows what value that has, um, where he makes, I guess he has multiple mistresses that he has actually made sign non-disclosure agreements um, because he knows that as a CEO of a company as large as Google, that's going to affect his his worth as a CEO, if, if that sort of blows up into a big story, you know, if, if he has mistresses that come forward and, and, you know, spill their guts about, you know, their, their trysts with him or whatever. I mean, so he, he's smart enough to know that if he maintains that privacy, he'll, it'll, it, it will 
help him sort of save face as a CEO. So it's, yeah, it's, it's extremely hypocritical that Mark Zuckerberg wants to have his cake and eat it too. He, he could move somewhere remote, you know, a remote location and get like a, buy a bunch of land and, and have, you know, a fence around it or whatever. But instead he chooses to live in a relatively suburban neighborhood in Palo Alto, but he, but he bought the adjacent houses around his so that he can have more privacy. You don't have to answer this question, but I was wondering, how did you find out where he lived? Did you use Google? <laughs> oh, a simple Google search. Yeah, it didn't take very much. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there were, there were photos posted. Um, I used to have a bit in the film, actually, that was like kind of detailing the, the search, but it was so easy. It really was just Mark Zuckerberg's home address. There was a photo. You could see the number, you know, and it was close to I mean, it's just down the street from the Facebook campus. So it was not it was not hard at all to find. I mean, I, I, I mean, I felt a little bit, you know, because look, I'm making a film that's promoting these ideas of ownership and privacy, and and but at the same time, it, it it felt like confronting him about these issues when he's come out overtly saying that privacy is dead, it doesn't matter, we need to move on, we're evolving as a society, where we as Facebook are deciding what the social norms are now, which he's come out and said multiple times. I mean, if, if uh, or at least at least once in a video interview, you know, if this is the mentality, then it really seems to me that 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 is somebody somebody who invades our lives and lies to us about privacy experiments with us in the background anyone who does that i don't think uh deserves um you know deserves to to have their life just never be interrupted when they're in when that person is interrupting our lives with with regularity and lying to us with regularity of course. Yeah, I, I fully agree with that. I mean, that was, it, it was the perfect ending to your film. Um, and I loved how, and again, a spoiler alert for those who haven't seen it. I loved how you, you did the freeze frame on him sort of turning around and, and doing that sort of weird backwards wave and smile to you when you told him that you weren't recording. And I just thought that was such a poignant, perfect moment. I mean, to get on film. Funny because after that moment, like I didn't know what I was going to use it for, and you just sort of had to sit back and be like, "Well, here's somebody who you know has said forever that he doesn't care about privacy. He's asking, and then, and then of course, like confronting him with cameras was putting him in a sort of paradoxical situation where either he was going to talk to us and prove that he didn't care about privacy, or he was going to ask for his privacy. And of course, I had on these, these spy glasses that. Um, you know, that it that operate in the way kind of the government operates or operates in the way that Facebook operates. For yeah. instance, if you watch the film, you'll find out when you delete something on Facebook, you're just hiding it from yourself. You're not actually deleting anything. Facebook keeps it all. Of course, um, yeah. Even if and, you and delete your actual account, it's the same thing, right? You can't actually delete your account. Or can you? It, you know, it's... Uh, it's a little bit unclear right now what exact, I mean, according to their terms, it's not actually permanently deleted. They have some, they have some kind of wishy washy language. It makes it sound like it could be on other servers or things like that. So uh, it may or may not be hanging around. Um, so it's, it, and then there's also data retention requirements as well. But, uh, but more to the point is that you think that you're deleting something and it's still there, even though it says that it's been deleted. And that's the idea is, is just when, when we, when we ask to not be recorded, when we want history to be erased, that we should be in control of, it should be erased, you know, and having, 
And and when we have when we're watched all the time, when we're watched and we don't think that we're being watched, we behave differently. We behave more naturally. We smile. Why? Because suddenly we're not being recorded. Suddenly, suddenly the past can be forgotten, and and that allows us to be different in the present. You know, when your past always follows you, you're you are constantly living up to the expectations of your past, and it's very hard for you to sort of I don't know become a, try on a new hat, become a different person. And this is something that Mark Zuckerberg has also made clear. I mean, he said that having more than one identity is a lack of integrity, which is the opposite of the truth. Um, I mean, the reason what made the Internet beautiful in the beginning for, you know, all of us nerds out there, what made it beautiful in the beginning was just, was that experimentation, was that anonymity, was the ability to go out and try to be someone different, try, I mean, this is actually a subject that I explored in a film Monster Camp that I made in 2007, which is about live-action role players, which is people dressing up as other fantasy characters in order to try on different hats and experiment with their personalities. But the Internet let us do that, too. And uh, and forcing one identity where everything is retained all of the time and it and it can come back to bite you in the ass, um, it's is the antithesis of being human. Um, it is not a lack of integrity. It is uh, it is in fact um, the most human thing I can think of is is exploring and figuring out who you are. So I find it chilling that that many of the people in Silicon Valley have come out and, and people who run these organizations have come out saying that, uh, you know, saying that our, our past should chase us. We have nothing to hide, you know, nothing to do wrong when they themselves do things wrong, when they themselves do have things to hide, when they themselves probably behave differently with their parents and their friends and their siblings and when they're on TV. So as far as I'm concerned, it's, it's, it's hypocritical and, these systems, I mean, these guys should be held accountable for what they say and what they do. There was something that I that I remember reading from a long time ago that you also show in the movie that, that there was an interview that was done with Mark Zuckerberg where he, you'll have to give me some of the context on this, where he's, he's talking to someone about um, getting data from Harvard students and he says, they trust me. Or he puts trust in quotes. Who is he speaking to? And was this like in the during the very early days of Facebook? Like, who? What was this interview this in regards to? This is when Facebook was launching at Harvard, and uh, and it was a text message card, like an IM chat with an acquaintance at Harvard. Um, you know, and it was in the early stages when he suddenly he was getting thousands of people to give him access to all of their data. And his response was, they trust me, in quotation marks, dumb fucks. And you'll see people online, like on Reddit or whatever, coming out and like defending him saying, you know, well, it's totally taken out of context. It's not taken out of context at all. This is the, this is the brain behind Facebook. This is the guy. You know, we don't, we, we, we change as people, but there are some things which, you know, which we get better at just hiding. And I think that this is something he has gotten a lot better at hiding uh, as, as the years have gone by, because it's not, uh, it's not salient from a PR perspective to, uh, to think, you know, to be vocal about thinking your users giving you information is dumb talks. 
Yeah, it's pretty, I mean, it's also strange to me the way he was presented in, in the movie, The Social Network, is this almost like sort of guy who has Asperger's and he's really, you know, socially inept and he's just sort of conniving. And I mean, I I almost feel like that movie also sort of gives him a pass to some degree where it's like he didn't really know what he had and he was just sort of getting launched into this, you know, corporate um, world. And then the guy from Napster sort of, you know, showed him, you know, how he can use this to make billions of dollars. But I, I think that quote shows me that he was kind of a a dickhead from the very beginning <laughs> and uh and he knew what he was doing i mean he knew that people were ge- inherently trusting him to to keep this data private and he didn't care obviously um as evident by his dumb fucks statement it's just a really it's just a really funny it's just a really funny way to think about it like he could have been commenting on how awesome it was that all of these people are doing this and how it's going to like how he's going to like change the world and how he's going to help all these people connect like which is mar- which is Facebook's like new marketing slogan but instead of that he doesn't say that he he understands the value of the personal information he brings up the fact that it's a problem that people are trusting him and then he call he doesn't just call them idiots he calls them dumb fucks that is, a, it, it, it perfectly reveals what's going on in his brain. There's so many other strange, unethical aspects of Facebook that have to do with privacy violations, but also just have to do with just their weirdness as a company. Like, there's been examples of Facebook u- utilizing pictures of, of dead relatives or dead pets um, for advertising, because that just seems to me really disturbing on a whole different level. Oh, yeah. I mean, Facebook can use your, your photos in advertising. It's in their terms and conditions. So if somebody dies or someone posts a picture and they don't, you know, Facebook can use it. That's end of story. I remember seeing a, a picture of a friend like five years ago, like in one of their advertisements. <laughs> I called her up like, you realize that Facebook is using your image for advertising. They just grant themselves the right to do that. Uh, it wouldn't be hard. They could they could actually have you opt in and say like, would you mind if we use you know if we used X Y Z? But they don't bother asking. They never have. They take. That's what they do, and that's what their terms and conditions are designed to do is take and take. It's a land grab, and they'll take everything they can. Yeah, that's just it's it's really disturbing. I mean, you take it for granted that oh well, they you know Facebook probably won't use my photos, but at the same time, if they retain that data forever, then I mean. It's, I don't know, it just, it just seems awfully strange to me that that's not more of a serious um, concern among, among Facebook users either. But there was something recent that came out, um, two stories actually, and I wanted to get a little bit of commentary from you on, on both of these stories. There was the Facebook's emotion manipulation test that was recently revealed, and the second in command at Facebook said... She kind of gave a quasi apology about it, but then she didn't. She didn't really apologize, and she essentially said that's just what companies do, referring to their <laughs> the idea that they manipulated users' emotions. Yeah. And then there was also an update to the Facebook cell phone app, um, and I'm reading from a, a Guardian article here. It says, "Quote." This new feature is optional and will only record sound if the app is activated by the user. Facebook has confirmed that no sound will be stored or shared to Facebook servers. However, the data will be converted into code and saved. Once the data is transformed into code, it cannot be reversed. So that's, to me, kind of like that when you were describing earlier, the wishy-washy 
aspect of some of this data retention is that it sounds to me like they're just going to be storing people's audio coming to the microphone. And I don't understand what they mean by the data is transformed into code. I I mean, code, what is code? Like, like language is code, right? Like words, like if you just translate it into. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, and, yeah. <laughs> and, and, every, and anytime something is stored, it's stored as code. I mean, when you store audio, you're storing it in ones and zeros, right? <laughs> That's what's so weird about it. It's like, are they just trying to, pull the wool over her eyes and say, no, it's digital. It's just code. It's not, you know, it's not uh, recordings. No, of yeah, your... they're, they're, they're trying to play to our ignorance. That's what they're trying to do. And they do this in Washington too. But I mean, that's their goal is just to, is just to, is just to use language as a weapon and, and use our, use our sort of inability to sort of discern the nonsense in the terms and conditions as a weapon. Um, it's hard to know exactly what they're going to do with all of that, but they're in the business of collecting as much information as possible and making sure that no one competes with them. And uh, I mean, that, and now they're also in the business of trying to convince us that they care about privacy. I mean, that's that's why they were trying to buy Snapchat. That's why they bought WhatsApp. You know, these are companies that theoretically that had a really good public image of putting privacy first. And I think Facebook kind of sees the writing on the wall a little bit. I mean, you know, they're they're losing users. People aren't on there as much. And that's why they invested in, they're trying to disrupt themselves. That's why they invested in Instagram. That's why they invested in WhatsApp. They're trying to find who's the next up and comer and then, and then consume them before they become a meaningful competitor. You know, and if you look at the guys who are behind WhatsApp, I mean, they really cared a lot about privacy. So it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating, um, buy for Facebook to have been able to make. I mean, it's hard to say no to billions, right? Well, um, I'm not familiar with that company. What Describe what that is. WhatsApp, um, it was a way to sort of work around text messaging internationally um, with other people. Uh, I think they bought it for $19 billion. So, it, I mean, that's a, that's a massive amount of money <laughs> for a company of this size. But WhatsApp was more popular in other countries. And again, that's where these companies are trying to do their expanding the most. And it was, it was massively, it was increasing users on a cra- at a crazy rate. And I think Facebook saw, they're like, oh man, they're, they're starting to build profiles. People are starting to connect using WhatsApp. But it was done in a much more um, private way. And without like sharing as much information, it was really just about like connecting with contacts and being able to communicate with them. You know, more like, more like a yellow pages with just your friends, a contact list. It was more utilitarian and it saved people money. It, you know, it helped them find a workaround to just, you know, having to pay crazy amounts of, of money for the highway robbery that is <laughs> international text messaging or text messaging in general. Uh, and, and Facebook said, Hey, you know what, this looks like an opportunity to suck up some data. Let's do it. And so they continue the WhatsApp service as their autonomous thing, just like they did with Instagram. But that doesn't mean that they're not combining data sets in the background. They're legally allowed to do that. It's, it's interesting. I mean, because I, I, I see Facebook dying, you know, a slow death. I mean, I, I guess in my mind, I've always seen it as it's going to go the way of MySpace eventually. But as you said, they're buying all these other companies and trying to hedge on what, you know, which companies like Instagram might actually usurp them in the future. Well, and then they can, but then they can pretend like they're disrupting themselves, like pretend like this thing, this new hip thing, you know, took, took over when it's really just them taking themselves over. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
you know, it's that that is uh, like what is it in 1984 where you just you just have this like eternal war where you pretend like one wins and the other side wins, but it's really always been the same. I don't know. This is uh, it's the same thing. If you can figure out how to disrupt yourself, you can never be disrupted. That raises an interesting point about this recent campaign that was even promoted by Edward Snowden himself, which was called Reset the Net. A lot of the 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 campaign was actually promoted by Google, and there was some language in the campaign that said, "Don't buy cell phone, you know, Android cell phones from other carriers. Buy Android cell phones like directly from Google." And I just find found that kind of remarkable because it's sort of this false dichotomy, like you know, one side pitted against the other. But in reality, as as we've been talking about this whole time, when you're handing over data to Google. Um, it's the same thing as handing it to the government. I mean, you know, is reset the net, the net on the right track at all in your mind, or do you think it was sort of destined to to fail from the beginning? Well, I think we've got some strange bedfellows going on right now, and um, because Google Google currently is trying to obviously distance itself as much as possible from the NSA surveillance. So they, they do have an incentive to start using better encryption methods. I mean, you know, because we know HTTPS is, has a backdoor that was built by the NSA. Um, and, and that was a big part of Reset the Net was using HTTPS. Um, do I, I mean, I don't know if it's faulty. I think it's, it's actually re- like having more encryption and building that into the backbone of the Internet is really helpful. Um, and I think that for right now, a reason why a lot of these organizations are partnering with Google is that, A, they see them as, like, the lesser evil. Um, and and uh, I think that there are conversations going on um, that suggest that Google is going to do everything in their power to protect its users. And so they're, they're trying to convey trust. I don't trust Google, but do I still use Google? Yeah, I still use Google because they're so good at what they do. But but I'm but do I communicate things through Google that are highly private and that I don't want Google to know um, or the government to know? You know, I, then I use other services. So I kind of like bounce between stuff at this point in time. But it's hard because everybody else is using Gmail anyway. So what do you what do you do? Um, do you get everybody to use encrypted mail? I mean, this is a challenge of like how do you get out of these systems? And I think that's what a lot of these organizations that are out there see. They're like, well, how do we get these big companies to jump on board with better encryption methodology? Like, is it actually possible? Can we can we use this NSA thing to actually get them to use their funding and resources to actually provide meaningful encryption. Because if you look at it on paper, um, these companies have no real incentive to be sharing with the government outside of, like what I, like I said before, fear and then potential like assistance from, from, um, from the government when it's trying to branch into new international markets. Um, but but outside of that, I, I mean, they they could theoretically have much more motivation to to protect their users, and that's what I think the the partner organizations see. You know, the NGOs that are out there who are partnering with them see. I don't. I just. I like I said before, though. I just don't. I just don't trust them. I don't. I, I think that it's been clear why trust a company who went and did all of this stuff before and suddenly now they're going to do right by us. But I understand at the same time why the nonprofits who work in this space really hard are, are, are pushing in this direction and trying to work with 
Google because they also think that people aren't going to leave Google. So, yeah, I mean, there's even been some. I know that this website Pando Daily has been like they've been hammering away at you know Glenn Greenwald. They've been trying to claim that he's you know selling the leaks and that he's um, that Piero Midiar of PayPal is somehow you know holding the 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 like he's the gatekeeper of all this information. But one of the interesting things they raised a couple months back, I think, or maybe it was very recently, that the Electronic Frontier Foundation has actually received, I guess, on multiple occasions, grants from Google. And I, and I guess I was really surprised by that because, uh, you know, on one hand, this is this is part of the evil that they should be fighting. But on the other hand, there is a lot of sort of faith, I guess, out there that Google will reform because they have more of a, you know, they've publicly expressed more concern about this. And, and I, and I very much stand behind what the EFF is doing, but I'm just wondering if you've, if you've heard anything about that or, or what your thoughts are on, on them receiving any money from Google. Well, anytime you, I mean, I, I was aware of that and I love EFF. I think they do fantastic. They're do some, do the best work out there. Um, then in demand progress and the ACL, you were all doing fantastic work and in the space. And, uh, but the problem is when you get money from someone, it does change your relationship with them and getting money from Google. I think, you know, instead of maybe going public with a big campaign that might attack Google, they might just say, they might just call Google up and say like, look, here's what's going on. We'll run a campaign or you can just deal with it. Um, but you know, it, it changes the relationship ever so slightly, and it 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 keeps them involved in reset the net. And I think that they probably, I mean, the people who are at EFF are brilliant minds who aren't going to let them get away with much. Um, but I think what it probably the money may do is just make EFF be slightly more slightly more reserved in in their attacks. Um, but I think that EFF is still doing the work that they need to be doing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I fully stand behind them. I mean, I, I even recently went to um, one of the hearings that they did out here in Oakland, and it was just kind of fascinating to see, see their legal team argue with the the NSA representatives. I mean, in a lot of ways, it was incredibly frustrating because the NSA um, representative was just saying all the same, you know, shitty fake talking points that they've said, you know, hundreds of times before right. on TV and stuff. But I mean, they're, they're a very dedicated group of individuals. And, um, but I wanted to go back to the idea that let's just assume for the sake of argument that Google, Facebook, that all these major Silicon Valley internet companies start fully encrypting all of their servers, all of their data and creating a situation where the government can't through a backdoor collect their information. Or if, even if they did, it would be useless to them. Do you still think, I mean, because your movie mostly is about the other side of it, which is just why are we letting these corporations use us as, as these commodities and why are we agreeing to these these terms that we don't even read? It doesn't, it doesn't, it still doesn't eliminate that issue at all, does it? Even if these companies do encrypt all their data because they, they're still going to use that data in the same ways they've been using it to make money this whole time. Isn't that true? Yeah. Look, I, I, I don't have a problem with with companies making money um, if they can figure out a way to do it that it, that's ethical and that doesn't exploit user data in a way that is damaging to privacy. Um, and I think that there just needs to be... I'm actually working right now on something kind of exciting and new in the innovative space with some folks in San Francisco 
on this. Um, but just the idea is moving away from thinking about this as a privacy problem and thinking about it instead as an ownership problem. And I think right now, because all of these companies, all of these companies treat data uh, like like we we all talk about it like it's pri- privacy is the big deal. But if you if you try to activate an audience on privacy, like I can show someone my film and they'll get like annoyed and upset for a while, and then but then we go back to our daily life because it's really tough. And I think we need <laughs> to start thinking about all of our personal data as ours. And we need to, in order to like overcome these terms and conditions and these crappy privacy policies, we need to work with companies that, that don't think of the data as their as their property, but as the user's property. And it's, it's just, it's a, it's a shift that we need to make because we're not going to get privacy protections in place, but if you restore the actual data and you put it in the hands of the user, you, you, you give it to them and uh, you give them the key, it, it changes the whole conversation. And I, that's, that's how I see us funny. I don't see it being like company self-regulating, suddenly like, you know, terms and conditions regulations. I mean, I do think that we need to require companies to, um, to make available any data that they have on us. I think that that should be a law. I think that any information that Facebook or Google has on us, uh, we should be able to take and it should be ours. Um, you know, if you want to leave Facebook because I don't know, they just did a massive emotional manipulation study <laughs> in the background and, and changed, you know, changed their terms four months after they started the study to include word, a word like research. And then you're like, Hey, you know what? I, I don't want to be with you anymore. You should have meaningful choice to leave. You should be able to take your information and go to, I don't know, some other uh, social media service who takes your, takes your privacy seriously. But right now we're held hostage by these companies. And it's, it's stifling innovation, like massively stifling innovation. Imagine if you could suddenly say like, hey, you know what, Google? I'm out of here. Like, I don't like what you guys are doing. Hey, Facebook, I'm out of here. Hey, Yahoo. Hey, AOL. Hey, Microsoft. Hey, whoever. I'm out of here. And suddenly you have to maintain trust with the user. And in order to do that, you might actually modify your privacy policy. You might actually start self-regulating. It's possible. So that's why I think it's an ownership problem. And that's why I think we need to start thinking about it as an ownership problem and stop talking about it as privacy. Because people get something that is theirs. They're like, oh, right, like that is mine. That is my property. You don't own my property. Um, but it's much the, the privacy argument is, is more complicated, it's more philosophical, and it's much more difficult to kind of navigate in a regulatory way. That's a great way to, to shift it over to something that I think more people could feel a direct effect from if they thought about it as their date, you know, their property essentially being owned by these companies because privacy as a concept is, is hard, I guess, for some people to understand how it really affects them that much. I mean, you'll hear so many people say, you know, I'm not doing anything wrong, so I don't have anything to hide. And, you know, people always have some kind of weird defensive reaction to that, um, who haven't really thought about it that deeply before I'll, I'll, I'll say. No, I mean, you can make, you can respond to that argument. You can say, well, look, like it's not about you. It's about, it's about the, you know, the, the, the marginalized, you know, Muslim community who has had, who's faced like nasty surveillance forever. You know, it's about a journalist who needs to be able to talk to a whistleblower so we can find out about massive NSA spying that's been going on. When we talk about digital privacy, people think they're like, Oh, it's just, you know, me and like my emails, but it's much more, 
more than that. It's a much bigger problem. It's a, for the people who need the privacy the most are not the people are not the Chris Anderson of the world who work at Wired. They're not the they're not the people who have bought into the system. They're the people who disagree with the system. Um, you know, that they're the ones who for whom this country was founded. You know, the ones who who actually believe in free speech and that the country can actually be modified through um, through reform and by through dissent. And if you are constantly monitoring, you know, that's where monitoring is most problematic. It's most problematic on people who are dissenters, and that's who it's used against. Yeah, and I think, I mean, the only counter-argument to that is that I think most people just don't put themselves in the shoes of, of those groups of people you just described because most people don't fall into that category. So it's really easy for the general populace to just think that they don't have anything to hide but you know then when you actually really question them on specific things like you know glenn greenwald has raised this point before that well if you don't have anything to hide then give me your email password um let me get access to your yeah, computer yeah. <laughs> blah, blah, I, think, blah. I, think we, I think we've all said that take off your pants and move into a glass house yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so every everybody has something to hide i mean it's a it is a bs kind of automatic defensive reaction you hear about only these these monolithic companies for the most part um and i loved how in your film you you keep you know when you when you'll have like a text um a card sort of come up in your movie it'll be in the font of of these companies that are it's so instantly recognizable like the twitter font or the or the yahoo font i mean we've just seen We've been inundated with these logos for so long that your brain instantly recognizes those fonts as familiar. But there seem to be some less familiar companies out there that may be, you know, either new on the scene or just obscure in general that have pretty problematic privacy policies also. And um you briefly show in the in the film OK Cupid. I don't know if you show Dropbox, but or for instance, Condoleezza Rice apparently just joined the um, the board of Dropbox, which I thought was very strange. Um, mm-hmm. You know what what do, what kind of data does OKCupid sell, and how do they use it to make money? What what kind of data does Dropbox sell? How do they, how do they make money off of that data? Or Instagram can can Instagram use people's pictures for advertisements? I mean. Right. So, I mean, if you look at OkCupid, it's hard to know exactly how they're using the information because they don't say. You don't know who they're selling it to. I mean, there's a massive ad data network of of companies who work behind the scenes whose names we've never heard of. I point out one in the film called Axiom. But, you know, there's, there's a huge handful of these companies that are out there, uh, hundreds, and the industry is growing, um, who, who are in the business of, of trading, uh, trading our personal information, you know, and, and want to know the answers to questions that OkCupid would ask, like, do you enjoy po- smoking pot in the morning while watching The Breakfast Club? <laughs> you know, because it's, it's a very personal question that, like, then they're like, oh, like, now I know how to better target this person with advertising. So, you know, and if you think about the answers that you give to a dating site, man, like those, those questions are very personal. And you, the reason that you answer them is because you know, what you want is for someone else who's answered really personal questions to connect with you. But where the value is, is you're giving this company unbelievable answers to crazy ass questions that like you can't get answers to anywhere else. So yeah, that's super valuable information. Uh, Dropbox 
their business model is charging you for space. Their business model is not selling your data. That's that's not what the, the business that they're in. Um, is it vulnerable? I don't know. Is it? You know, I mean, they've had problems in the past. Um, they've they've tried to modify that with having better encryption methods. But I mean, the whole point of any cloud service is that you're storing your information on someone else's servers. So again, you know, if if they have your password memorized, which they do, then your stuff is accessible to the government. Um, it's not in that encryption. So don't be storing anything that you don't want the government to see on Dropbox, but they're not they're not in the business of selling data. One of the companies I think is actually really fascinating is um, Ancestry.com. Uh, this was pointed out to me maybe last year. So maybe... Maybe you're not familiar, but Ancestry.com uh, asks you for samples of your DNA now. Oh, like yes. You send in, yes, yes. You send in a saliva sample. And it struck me. I was just like, oh, my gosh. Like, they're not in the business of connecting to your, your past. They're in the business of of literally knowing your DNA. Like, that, that information, that data set is unbelievably valuable. And, like, no one's talking about it. No one's talking about how valuable the answers, like, what they're in the business of. But that's, that's their goal. That's Ancestry.com's goal is to, is to know your DNA and to have that information, to store that, and to, you know, and to make decisions based on that. And that's scary. Like, that's really scary. Is, is it true that Ancestry.com is actually, like, um, in part ran by the Church of the Latter-day Saints, the Mormon Church? Or am I confusing I, it with another I'm genealogy sure website? I, I, maybe they have some... They, they might own some stake in it. I mean, I, I, I couldn't speak to that. <laughs> yeah. So apparently, Mormon religion has been, like, collecting, you know, genealogy data on, you know, the world's populations oh, yeah, very, for... You know, that stuff, yeah. A long time. Um, but you, you raise an interesting point with OkCupid. The type of questions they ask you are extremely personal. I mean, some of the questions are even about, you know, uh, sexual fetishes and, and things like that. So to me, it's interesting that, you know, someone using one of these websites who tends to be more progressive or liberal or open-minded would think, oh, that's kind of cool. You know, this website is sort of appealing to my more, you know, like adventurous sort of like, it appeals to a part of, I think, the human soul that that other websites don't when you're, when you're sort of revealing that kind of information about yourself, it almost seems like the site is sort of like your friend, you know, like you're not, you don't think of it as you're just giving this information to a, to a, a corporation. But there was a recent thing that Facebook did that got a lot of accolades among sort of the LGBT community, which was that Facebook um, created many different gender options for their, um, for their, for user profiles which on its face, it seems really cool, really, really progressive of them to do. But once again, it almost, to me at least, just seems like they're just getting on the tip of the spear of data collection. Like, you know, what's the new frontier of data mining? Oh, you know, people's, people's gender orientation, you know, because there's all these new types of gender orientations. So that I, I, there's a whole fascinating angle of that. It's like, you know, being really, seeming really progressive and really liberal you know, it's just a, almost could be a guise to just buy more real estate in the, um, in the, in the human, human data mining industry. Yeah, that's smart. Yeah. Just like, where do you just exist on the spectrum of like gun control? Yeah. Yeah. Be open and genuine. But I mean, that's interesting with the LGBT, um, community. I, and it makes sense, you know, why one of the biggest advertising tools is gender. 
So if you're able to market to someone based on that, I'm sure that it would be very, very helpful. Um, but again, like I'm glad that they did that. It's, 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 it helps people feel better represented. It's a, it's a good thing for, for sites to do in general. The problem is that you can, and I have people, I have a feeling that people who are, are making those decisions or, you know, to, to, to label themselves on Facebook or, are most likely comfortable with letting the world know what their sexual orientation is. Of course. Um, Where it becomes much more problematic is when someone doesn't want the world to know. And, you know, and and these companies are able to look at their, like, look at their shopping habits or websites they visited or um, searches that they've done and make decisions and, and then feel, you know, provide them with advertising, which has made decisions about their sexual orientation that could be very revealing. Yeah. Or even you, you raised, um, a few stories that, that happened to people, um, in your, in your film. Um, one of them was a father, uh, you know, angeredly going into target complaining that he was getting, um, he was getting mail, um, from target. Well, his teenage daughter was getting mail from target advertising pregnancy like yeah. basically saying like buy a stroller here get your diapers here like and he was furious that his daughter was being solicited to by target um he he felt like target was basically saying you should be getting pregnant when in actuality based on her shopping habits target was able to analyze them and determine that uh yes she was in fact pregnant and uh the father found this out because of the marketing yeah, that is incredibly creepy to me. And but I mean it makes perfect sense. I mean, it, I'm I'm actually surprised that that doesn't happen more often. The, the the data tracking and monitoring in the old-fashioned form, that's why there's all these customer clubs. <laughs> you want to save a little bit of money, join our club. All of those clubs are just huge data tracking. I mean, that's what they're there for. They're there so that they know all of your shopping patterns, they know who you are. And um, they're able to target you with advertisements or coupons, or, and then that that stuff all gets sold behind the scenes. Yeah, that's very that's like one of the oldest forms of data tracking in, in terms of the last twenty thirty years. After Piero Midiar of PayPal um, swooped in and, and started this new media venture with Glenn Greenwald, I think he actually was one of the competitors um, with Jeff Bezos from Amazon to try to buy the Washington Post. And then he decided to put up the same amount of money that Bezos offered for the Washington Post um, for a completely new media venture, which was called The Intercept. Or I'm sorry, it was First Look was The Umbrella and The Intercept was was sort of the first thing under that uh, that media umbrella. And there's been a lot of you know criticisms from coming from more of the hard left of people who are essentially saying that this dot-com billionaire, you know, has swooped in to control the flow of information that he's probably working with the government and all this stuff. And, um, you know, some people have even gone as far as saying that he has, he is um, making Glenn Greenwald sit on documents that show PayPal and eBay's relationship to the NSA and things like that. I don't personally subscribe to a lot of those beliefs, but I was just wondering what you thought about that, or if you've heard much about that controversy, or what your thoughts were on it. I mean, it sounds conspiratorial to me. I don't know. I it, it seems like I, I I can see what it's it's a, it's a question worth asking. Like, why not ask the question? But um, I don't. Glenn Greenwald has no interest in founding an organization that does the opposite of 
of all of the work and effort he puts. I mean, he didn't write a book and he's not going on tour and he didn't like travel to Hong Kong so that he could start a media conglomerate that like hands over information. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's preposterous. So. But there's, yeah, there's, there's quite a few very vocal people out there who are, who are trying to, you know, go after him now, I guess because of the slowness of, of some of the stories that have come out since, um, since first look launched. But it does raise an interesting question that there are, you know, are some of these like billionaire dot comers are, you know, can they be genuinely interested in civil liberties and protecting people's privacy and civil rights? And I think that that's, um, that's an interesting question in and of itself. And I think even Ralph Nader, wrote a book a few years ago called only the super rich can save us. And it was sort of about a bunch of billionaires sort of getting on the side of like humanitarian and and civil libertarian causes. Of course, of course a billionaire can be, can be on, can have, you know, this sort of side of good, especially billionaires who made it out of Silicon Valley and now feel guilty (laughs) about the data mongering, data hoarding that's been going on. Yeah. You know, I mean, they've, they've they've got the capital and they've got the will. If they, and if they have the will, then there's, there's a real potential there. And that's one of the things about how the American tax code works is that certain people are able to make these billions of dollars and they're the ones who can really make, you know, they, they can wield a lot of power and they have the power, the, that power to make a significant difference. So can they do things that are good? Yeah, they probably have more autonomous power than a lot of people do um, in terms of being able to do things which are, which are good for social change. I mean, Bill Gates has done a lot of fantastic things with the Melinda and Gates Foundation. And uh, you can't say much for Steve Jobs because I don't think he had any he ever gave money to charity, but you know, there's, there's the potential for that. You know, some people in Silicon Valley think the way that they help the world is by, um, you know, building better systems for people, which I guess is, you know, I guess that's Apple's mentality is, you know, invest in yourselves and continue to build better systems. I, I can't really speak to that, but I do believe that, um, yeah, I, I do believe that someone who is a, a multi-billionaire or a billionaire has the power to, you know, to make, change for good. And, uh, in some ways, like the book you were citing by Ralph Nader, I mean, they may be the only ones who have that power. I don't remember who it was in your film who said this, but she was essentially saying that we should stop seeing these companies as, you know, people sort of perceive them as more like public, free public utilities. Um, Benign public utilities. Benign public utilities. I mean, you could go back to the inception of Silicon Valley and Silicon Valley has always been, or it, it started as a sort of an arm of the um, the Pentagon in the defense industry. I mean, so much of the money that was poured into Silicon Valley in its very beginnings was to companies like Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman. So I guess it's not, it's, it's just strange how now we, we've, it's been so many decades since then that, that we do see these companies as having this sort of altruism or this or this, um, you know, they provide all these services to society, therefore they're, they're good. But just to sort of encapsulate this all, how do you think people should be viewing these companies, you know, if not like a public utility? There are new companies and there are old companies and there are companies that have good ideas and there are companies that are protecting user rights and there are companies like Facebook and Google, which, which is what Sherry Terkel was referring to when she said that line in the film, um, she's a professor at MIT, uh, you know, 
essentially saying, like, look, we, we can't treat them like benign public utilities because they're not regulated by like a public utility, um, even though even though hundreds of millions of people in America use them and perhaps they should be regulated by public utilities, they're not. Um, you know, these are for-profit businesses whose, whose responsibility is to make as much money as possible. You know, once they go public, everything changes. And, uh, and we should be extra, exceptionally weary of what we give to these companies. I mean, I guess you just imagine like, like the creepiest bureaucrat you can just sitting across the table from you, like typing down everything that you say and then like making 50 billion copies of it and sending it wherever they want. <laughs> we just need that instead of like a cute little logo with a bird on it. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's deceptive. It's, it's the third party trick again. And I, and Twitter is actually a pretty good company overall. They've, they've done good things for their users in the long run. Um, most of the best things they did were before they went public, but but when you look at, the, I mean, the big offenders are, are are the big guys. They're the they're the Facebooks and Googles and Microsofts and uh, Yahoo's of the world. It's it's these companies that that we need to disrupt. That's what it comes down to. They need to be disrupted. They we if they disrupt themselves, that is not true disruption. That is more of the same old shit. Um, Instagram is more of the same old shit. I mean, the reason Facebook tried to manipulate their terms back in December of 2012 was because they wanted to use the photos probably for a, um, for a kind of stock photo service. I mean, they were going to be able to sell them, um, do whatever they wanted with them. And that's probably where they thought they could maybe monetize for a while and people got outraged. But that's what my, my point is. It's, it's the same old thing. And unless we, you know, we shouldn't hate on all companies. Companies can do good. Um, but it always does come down to trust and the companies we should trust the most are the companies that protect, protect them, protect us from them. Um, because the only companies that are going to be able to, that are going to provide us a shield from the government are the ones that actually protect us from themselves. Very well put. And, and you raise the, the idea that, you know, these companies need to be disrupted and there was recently, uh, you know, an attempt to do an Occupy Google encampment down at the um, <clears throat> at the Mountain View campus, I believe. And it really was mostly just about net neutrality. It wasn't it wasn't directly focused on a lot of the issues you raised in your movie. But you know, there's the inherent problem now that when you actually, you know, quote unquote, disrupt a company. Um, if you disrupt their profits, and in some instances in the United States, people have actually been charged with a crime um, for doing that, for for protesting certain companies and actually creating a loss of profits for them. So it does create an interesting dilemma. It's like, how can we perform civil disobedience, um, you know, besides just completely opting out of the system? You know, how do we as a society disrupt these companies and what they're doing without you know, actually being in some sort of weird gray area where they can charge us with, you know, terrorism or, or who knows what else. And oh yeah, I mean, I mean, that's because they can, that's because they have the power to write the law. Right. So yeah, of course they're going to write laws that punish us greatly for hurting their profits. But if they hurt us, we don't have any recourse. Um, and that's obviously it's, it's, it's as backwards as it could be. Um, when I talk about disruption, I mean, you look at, you look at groups like WikiLeaks and Anonymous, and they, even people within Anonymous don't think that everything that Anonymous does is, is for the best, um, you know, because it, 
because it doesn't have one mission statement. Yeah. But there's a lot of vital protest that goes on within that organization and, um, or deorganization or whatever you want to call it. And, uh, and, um, when I talk about disruption though, I, I, I talk about new companies, new ideas, disrupting the old ones. Yeah. yeah. And I think that what we desperately need at the end of the day, you know, these companies aren't going to fix themselves. And what we desperately need is, it's a cultural shift, and that, and the hope is that the film, in terms of conditions they apply, helps with that. You know, gives people more awareness, makes them look towards systems. But people aren't going to adopt things just because they add privacy. It's not going to happen. They'll adopt things because they give them a lot more than that. They have to be more convenient. They have to, um, they have to give them ownership, and they have to, they have to give them um, control, and. And and then it also has to give them something that they that they didn't know they wanted. If you can do all of that, then you can disrupt. And that's the challenge, um, you know, while providing encryption. And that's the challenge is how do we build this new internet? But that's what we're really talking about here. We we need to build a new internet. The old model doesn't work. Um, and and that's 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 our way out of this hole. It's not going to be legislation. It's not going to be protest. At the end of the day, it's going to be innovation. This this film, um, terms and con- and conditions may apply. Should be required viewing for for every employee of of these major Silicon Valley companies. And um, you know, I feel like if a lot of them watched it, this film, they might even question what they're doing. But then you have the the problem where you know Mark Klein waited until he retired from AT and T to blow the whistle on them. And these, you know, most of these these major dot com co- companies like Facebook and Google, it seems like they treat their employees extremely well, and they have a a much more di- like, I guess I I hate I hate to use this phrase, but almost like a more cult like mentality where it's it would be I think it would be harder for someone a young employee of these companies to actually blow the whistle and and risk their career because they they a lot of them truly love their jobs, so. But I do think we do need a, a shift in consciousness and and um and your film is a is a great piece in that puzzle. And you you said you were working on several projects right now, um simultaneously. Did you want to talk about what those were? Or can you talk about sure. them yet? Well I can sort of talk about them. But I should also say when I when I say, you know, it's not going to be protest, it is going to be protest. I mean, Edward Snowden was protest, right? Like People blowing the whistle is the ultimate form of protest, and that that actually makes. I mean that that is that's transformative, and obviously protest is is super necessary. But I think at the end of the day, we just we need new tools um, if if we're really going to get out of this hole. Um, you know, so it's a it's a hybrid of all of the things, but I definitely emphasize innovation. Yeah, you um, ju- you just mean people going picketing, you know, at these companies is is not necessarily going to be the most effective strategy, but there's other yeah, forms I mean, the of protest. Pro- the best way to protest, the best way to protest a company is by not using them. Um, you know, and then, and then you can be vocal too and, 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 and let people, I mean, that's like what the film does, right? Like the film is a form of protest, you know, it's, it's, it's helping shed light so that people stop using the companies. So, and, and do look towards more innovation, you know, new, new solutions. So I, I rescind the protest, but I, I retain that innovation was going to get us out of this. But um, as long as people are looking for those solutions. In terms of what I've been working on, um, I'm, I'm working on a film right now that is sort of focusing on these, these, this idea of ownership. 
Um, I'm also working on a, on a, on a project, um, like I've mentioned before, with some people in Silicon Valley trying to, who care about these things, trying to, um, trying to bring that, that to light, trying to come up with, with ways to actually get out of this problem that, that, that give people control and ownership over their, over their data. Um, but the film that I'm working on is, it's, it's a mixture of net neutrality and, um, ownership and censorship. And it's, it's sort of a follow-up to, to terms and conditions, but I think the focus is more on the telecom giants this time and the, the, the companies that control the flow of information. That's, that's the focus. Um, and, uh, and I've been actually in West Virginia for the last six months. It's, it's kind of off topic, but in some ways not, um, making a film about the water crisis that happened there. Uh, there are 300,000 people who had their water contaminated by, a uh, an unregulated chemical company, you know, who, who hadn't really been checked in a while, who was just storing chemicals up the river from a water intake. And uh, everything went wrong, like everything that could possibly have gone wrong went wrong. When that much stuff goes wrong, um, it's not a coincidence. So the film is an investigation into um, all of the players and ultimately the mentality that led to um, something that you probably wouldn't imagine happening in America, which is 300,000 people having their water supply tainted for months with a a chemical we know nothing about. Wow, so, wow. It's a it's a big film about transparency in government, communication, and really I mean how transparency makes makes such a big difference in, in all of this stuff. Um, especially when it comes to the government. And I think it I think it, it dovetails nicely with, with terms and conditions, which is that, you know, the government expects wants us to be as transparent. The companies want us to be transparent, but they're extremely opaque. You know, they need secrets when we don't. And that's that's where the problem lies. I mean, you can't you can't say that say that transparency is great and wonderful, and then not actually apply that to yourselves. And I think that we've seen in Europe governments, which the more transparent a government is, the, the the better that government seems to have the favor of its people. And uh, and we could probably take a lesson from that in some in some respects. And you know, have a little bit, have more transparency with our government here. Well, that sounds awesome, Colin. It sounds like you have the makings of a, of a trilogy forming, um, kind of going along a similar thread. Um, and uh, could you well, give us, I'll, I'll certainly say that the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the next internet one is a nice, isn't it? should be an interesting follow-up to terms and conditions. The other one's a little bit tangential, but I think philosophically in the same vein. So, and can you give us anything um, like an ETA on either one of these, or are they too far away from completion? Well, yet? I can tell you the name of the the film that's being that I've shot in West Virginia is called "In Case of Emergency," and that'll come out probably early next year in festivals, and and then be available wider later in the year. Great. So, in case of emergency, um, <laughs> Robbie, thank you for uh, for taking all this time with me, and I, I hope that. Uh, I hope that you know <laughs> the information we've discussed is is useful and that people watch the film. It'll probably be more useful to watch the film before listening to this, but you know, if you've already made it through an hour and a half, that's, <laughs> that's not really uh, an option anymore. <laughs> yeah, and and hopefully a lot of people who may have not have heard of the film will will go and check it out now that they've listened to this. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate the time you've taken with me today, Colin. And um, Good luck on your on your new films, and I can't wait to see 
both of them they sound uh very interesting and uh maybe we'll talk at some point in the future when you have um when one of these films is on the horizon sounds good <laughs>